Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup. I told him that the stuff that his people were shuttling out to the public were bull- was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. And I said, look, you are asking me to do something against my oath, and I will not break my oath. These are some of the biggest moments so far from the January 6th hearings in the U.S. These hearings are investigating what exactly happened on and in the lead up to January 6th, 2021, when supporters of then-President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol. By the end of the day, four people in the crowd were dead, as well as one officer. Four other police who were there later died by suicide. The hearings have been going on for months, and another hearing is set to broadcast this evening. It might just be the last one. A ton of information has come out. So if you feel like you've lost the thread on what's happened, you're not alone. Adrian Morrow is here to help. He's the Globe's U.S. correspondent. He's here to share the most important things we've learned from these hearings and what happens now that they're almost over. This is The Decibel. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. These hearings about what happened on January 6th and and leading up to January 6th, they've been going for a while now. What is the purpose of these hearings? The ostensible purpose is for the the January 6th committee to um, assemble kind of a public record of of what happened exactly and everything that kind of led up to it, um, get it on the record and uh, and maybe make recommendations for for ensuring that it doesn't happen again. You know, probably more significant than that are sort of the the less sort of official things that that could come out of this. Um, One is that um, the evidence that's gathered by the January 6th committee and certainly the report that they write could prompt the the Department of Justice um, and there's some indication may have already prompted the Department of Justice to launch uh, further uh, criminal investigations into uh, Donald Trump or people close to Donald Trump. Mm. And then the third one is, is sort of the political ramifications where, you know, putting all of this um, on the public record could have the effect of, of hurting Trump. You mentioned the possibility of criminal investigations there. Could Trump or people around him, could they be indicted or, or could they be charged with crimes? Potentially. So far, the Department of Justice, you know, has mostly been investigating either people who uh, actually attacked the Capitol on January 6th um, or the leadership of some of the um, the, the far right groups that organized um, the protests on, on January 6th. So far, they haven't indicted. I guess they've indicted some people for not responding to congressional subpoenas. But but in terms of planning or, or instigating January 6th, they haven't indicted anybody around Donald Trump for that. But there's certainly is the the possibility that they could um, look at at bringing uh, criminal charges, whether it's, you know, conspiracy to defraud uh, the American people or trying to obstruct an official proceeding, basically trying to um, stop Congress from doing its its constitutional duty to formalize, you know, Joe Biden's election as, as president of the United States. To be clear, though, that is a separate process from the hearings that are happening now, right? This is something that would happen after that. 
Yeah, so it can either happen after or in parallel. So the committee doesn't have the power to lay criminal charges. Basically, the only thing mm-hmm. that the committee really has the power to do is to investigate, you know, what happened. They can refer information to the Department of Justice and say, you know, uh, here's here's something that you that you, we think you should take a look at. The Department of Justice, um, you know, can basically investigate at any time. So far, it seems that they've kind of mostly held back from from doing that. It's unclear whether that's because they don't think that there's um, you know grounds to investigate Trump and people around him, or if they're waiting for the committee to finish up their work because they want to sort of have all of that information in front of them before they they do their own investigations, mm-hmm. you know, or whether they're sort of afraid of the kind of precedent that it might set if they investigate and and potentially indict a former president. Before we really get into the details of this, why does this matter, Adrian? Like, why should people in the U.S., but but also here in Canada and elsewhere in the world, why should we care about what Trump may or may not have done here? So I think in the U.S., people should care because it's their democracy. And so if, if they value having a democracy, having the rule of law, having a constitutional system that, that functions in any sort of predictable way, um, they should care that somebody, um, uh, that a, a number of people around around Donald Trump tried to overturn the democratic results of an election. For people outside the U.S., for people in Canada, the reason this matters is that it's twofold. I mean, one is that the U.S. is such a large and powerful country that any instability, um, you know, including the sort of instability that, that clearly would have uh, resulted had, you know, a democratic election been overturned, you know, that sort of instability, you know, can affect the world, uh, you know, whether it's on the security front um, or it's on the economic front and in a matter of, of trade. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, things that happen in the U.S. do tend to spill over into other countries. And, and I think we certainly have seen that in Canada in the, in the last number of years where there are people who take their cues from Donald Trump, um, you know, people who uh, may even take their cues from uh, from the, the, the riders on, on January 6th. Kind of like what we saw in Ottawa this year with the Freedom Convoy, right? This it, a similar kind of movement, not the same, but there's some similar aspects to it. Yeah. And I mean, and you certainly heard some of the rhetoric from some of the people who participated in that who, you know, compared it to January 6th and and seemed to think that, you know, maybe it would be a good idea if the Freedom Convoy turned into a January 6th type scenario where you were trying to, um, you know, to, to shut down, uh, to shut down the elected government. Uh, you've been you've been watching these hearings closely, obviously. What would you say are the four most important things that we've learned so far from these hearings? Sure. Yeah, I'd say I'd say off the top, the the the, the most significant one is is that Trump um, seems to have planned the march on the Capitol in advance, um, and even wanted to lead it himself. The second, I think, is is the fact that before January sixth, Trump put a tremendous amount of pressure on um, state level officials, on uh, Justice Department officials, and on then Vice President Mike Pence uh, to overturn the election for him. Um, the third would be that a lot of people around Donald Trump knew that the election was not stolen, knew that Joe Biden had won legitimately, knew that there was nothing to these um, these sort of conspiracy theories that Trump uh, you know was was peddling, um, and told Trump so you know repeatedly. And then I'd say that the fourth one is that Trump knew how dangerous some of the the protesters could potentially be. He knew that they were armed. And there are indications that some of the far-right groups that planned uh, January 6th and participated in January 6th um, were in touch with people in Trump's orbit, uh, sort of leading up to that. 
Hmm. Okay, so there's a there's a lot to unpack there, but let's let's start from that first one that you mentioned, which is essentially the the premeditation aspect. Why is it important that Trump knew ahead of time what was going on here? One of the main defenses for Donald Trump um, would be this idea that he never intended things to get out of hand, that he just wanted to have some completely legal rally uh, in the Ellipse, which is parked near the White House, to sort of protest, you know, the, the Joe Biden's presidential victory, but that he sort of never intended for people, you know, to storm Congress. Um, you know, as you probably remember, in a speech that day, he told his supporters to go up to Capitol Hill. He told them that he would be there. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol. There's now indication that that this wasn't an ad lib. This wasn't something that he just sort of decided spur of the moment to to kind of toss off, but that he had actually been planning for you know, for several days at least, that this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to have his supporters march to the Capitol. He wanted to be there. Um, and there are texts between different January 6th um, rally organizers saying so, basically saying that they were aware in the days before, you know, January 6th, that this is what Trump was going to do, that he was going to send people to the Capitol. And we also had dramatic moment in testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, a former, you know, White House aide, who basically said that, um, you know, not only had Trump repeatedly asked, you know, leading up to January 6th to be taken to the Capitol that day, but when he sort of got off the stage and realized that the Secret Service wasn't going to do that, that they weren't going to take him to the Capitol. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. Um, he, you know, supposedly apparently grabbed, you know, tried to grab the steering wheel, had to be restrained by the head of a security detail and then lunged at the head of a security detail um, sort of angrily, right. you know, in this kind of struggle in the in the backseat of the car. So, you know, so even that kind of indication that this is how far Trump wanted to go, that not only did he plan to send people to, to the Capitol and sent them, um, but he wanted to be there, um, you know, which could be could be very relevant, especially if there were if there were criminal charges. It's interesting. We talk about, like, especially Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony there. She really does get into the fact that there were conversations behind the scenes where people knew that January 6th was going to be a big deal. Uh, so it wasn't just Trump that was kind of thinking this, right? It's, it's it's kind of his inner circle that really was aware of this. Could could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, one of, one of Hutchinson's um, you know, comments was that she apparently had this conversation with Rudy Giuliani um, a few days before January 6th. As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be... The, the suggestion from that conversation and, and others is that, you know, Donald Trump and his people, you know, really did plan to overturn the election result, that they, they weren't just going to go out there and say, you know, Joe Biden committed you know, stole the election and, and we're mad about that, but that they actually planned to go up to, to Capitol Hill and, and put these, you know, these conspiracy theories in, in place and, and try to overturn the election result. Wow. Uh, let's move to your second takeaway, Adrian, the, the one about Trump pressuring different officials. Help me understand that. So Donald Trump, um, even before January 6th, basically spent several weeks after the election trying to get a whole bunch of different people to interfere in the election results on his behalf. And so um, 
One group of people were these Republican uh, state officials. So basically state legislators um, and other officials in swing states that had gone for Joe Biden. He met with legislators from Michigan and Pennsylvania at the White House. Um, he famously phoned uh, the, the Georgia Secretary of State and asked him to you know, find enough votes in Georgia um, for Trump to win. Find votes. Wow. To find votes, yeah. He said in this, uh, in this phone conversation. Um, in Arizona, he phoned up the, um, the Republican Speaker of the Lower House uh, who testified, subsequently testified at the committee. And he asked him, um, you know, basically told him, uh, you know, all these dead people voted, all these uh, undocumented immigrants voted. And so, you know, so basically you should you should overturn the election result. And what this uh, the speaker of the Arizona House, uh, Rusty Bowers, what he told the committee was that he repeatedly asked, um, you know, Trump and Giuliani for the evidence. And he said that originally, you know, Trump and Giuliani swore that they were going to give him evidence. Um, eventually, he said Giuliani admitted, you know, quote, we've got lots of theories. We just don't have the evidence. You know, so, you know, it seemed that even Giuliani at a certain point admitted that that they didn't actually have anything to sort of back this up. But nonetheless, they went to all these state officials um, and unsuccessfully you know, demanded that they that they overturn the results in their state. The Justice Department is also looking into allegations, apparently, that they put in fake electors. What, what does that mean? Like, what is a fake elector and, and why is that important? Yeah. So that was the, the other thing that they did in these states is that a bunch of Trump's, um, you know, uh, people around Trump basically got um, groups of, of Republicans to, to declare that they were the, the electoral college members for those states. So because um, because the, the way that it works in the U.S. is that, um, you know, when when they vote for the, the president, whoever wins the popular vote within that state basically gets all of the members of the Electoral College from that state assigned to them. And then it's the members of the Electoral College that, that decide who, you know, who becomes president. And so these swing states all had slates of Biden electors because Biden had won, you know, had won these states. And so what Trump's people did was they created um, alternate slates of electors who were going to vote for Donald Trump. And then they had them sign paperwork claiming to be the legitimate electors from these states and and wanted and sent up all this this paperwork you know, to, to Washington. This is like almost hard to understand because it's kind of incomprehensible and, and amazing that all of this was going on. But yet here we are. Um, you mentioned the vice president, Mike, Mike Pence there, Adrian. Trump also put a lot of pressure on Pence to overturn the results. What, what did he do there? One of the jobs that the vice president has in the U.S. is that, um, you know, he or she has to oversee the counting of the Electoral College um, you know, ballots. And, you know, this is typically a formality where the ballots basically have to be brought to Washington and sort of formally opened in Congress, um, you know, presided over by the vice president. Um, and then the vice president makes a declaration at the end of, of who won the election. One of Donald Trump's um, outside lawyers, this guy named John Eastman, came up with this um, this theory that that basically no you know constitutional lawyers agree with that the vice president actually has the power to go beyond that and that the vice president has the power to accept or reject ballots and so they wanted Mike Pence um, Trump wanted Mike Pence to either reject a bunch of Joe Biden's ballots. Or what he wanted Pence to do was basically to buy time by suspending the counting of the Electoral College votes entirely and sort of sending it back to the states. So Trump had you know, multiple conversations with Pence where he asked for this. Pence um, repeatedly refused. Trump wouldn't have it. In one meeting, apparently, he told Pence, if you don't do this for me, I don't want to be your friend anymore. 
um, in Don't another. Don't be your friend anymore. Wow, yeah, this is like yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking my ball and going home. Uh, and then, and then Trump went out, you know, gave his speech to his supporters. He inserted a whole bunch of references to Mike Pence that apparently weren't there in the in the written text of the speech. So he sort of extemporaneously decided to uh, to really turn the pressure up. When the mob of of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, they were chanting, "Hang Mike Pence." And they erected a gallows, you know, outside the Capitol. Um, we're definitely targeting the guy. And supposedly, uh, Pat Cipollone, the um, the White House counsel, you know, said this to Mark Meadows, who's Trump's chief of staff, said, you know, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, "Mark, we need to do something more." They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, "You heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong." You know, you heard him. Um, he thinks he thinks Pence deserves it. Let's move on to this third point that you mentioned, Adrian. Let's talk about whether Trump knew that the election was not stolen from him. What's 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 important about that? Yeah, you know. One sort of last line of defense that, that Trump might use if there were a legal proceeding would be to say that he had an honest, good faith belief that the election was stolen. And the committee has essentially heard evidence that that would suggest that that's not at all the case, that, that Trump was repeatedly told by a whole bunch of different people, um, you know, many of whom were very close to him, that the election was not stolen. Uh, Bill Barr, you know, the attorney general, testified to the committee that he uh, ordered investigations into a whole bunch of the different, um, you know, specific accusations of, of election rigging that, that Trump and, and his supporters were making, and that Barr couldn't substantiate any of them. He said, To date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. And, and he said he told Trump so and told Trump some, a bunch of people around Trump so, uh, including telling them that, that all of these conspiracy theories were BS, um, you know, in his words. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Ivanka Trump, in, in a taped deposition for the hearing, basically said that she accepted um, what, what Bill Barr said. I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he said, was saying. So Trump well knew that that that, that the election was not stolen, um, but he but he continued to to lie anyway and 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 claim that it was. Yeah. All right. The last the last point that you mentioned, Adrian, about how dangerous it actually was in January six. Tell us about that. So, a couple of things that the the committee heard on that. One is that. Um, there was a lot of of pre-planning by some of these um, far right groups, you know, to to either occupy you know government buildings, um, or to to stockpile weapons in one case. And these groups, basically, as they were as they were doing this planning, were in touch with uh, Mike Flynn and Roger Stone, who's another uh, Trump associate and and longtime um, you know DC political strategist. Both people who were in Trump's orbit um, essentially were in touch with the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers while this this planning was going on. Um, and then the second sort of sort of piece of evidence on this is that you know Trump was told on the morning of January sixth that many people in the crowd uh, that had come to hear him speak were armed. And the reason that they knew this was because um, there was a basically the the area right around uh, the stage that Trump spoke from was a secure space, um, you know, for Trump's for Trump's safety. And Trump apparently um, was looking at the at the space sort of before his rally and asked, you know, why why is it so empty? Why are there not more people sort of closer to the stage? And he was told, well, it's because there there's these metal detectors um, and people don't want to go through them because they, they're carrying guns. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. 
let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here, let the people in, take the effing mags away. Basically, he wanted the Secret Service to get rid of the metal detectors, allow his supporters to sort of come, you know, to, to come close. Um, and then even knowing that that a bunch of these people were armed, he decided to send them to the Capitol anyway. Adrian, how likely is any of this to make a difference? Because I think people are kind of used to Trump's antics and people either already love him or hate him. Like, is this going to change anything about how they see Trump? Yeah, that you know, my instinct after covering Trump for so long is that, you know, people, his supporters like him so much that it's like he can do almost anything and, and people just don't really tend to care. And I remember looking at a poll in, I think it was last winter, where something like 70% of Republican voters in the states believed that there, you know, that there'd been election fraud in 2020. So it seemed that... 70% some, of Republicans? 70% of Republican voters, you know, uh, believed at least some of, um, if not all of, of, of Trump's lies. <clears throat> that said, there has been a little bit more polling that sort of showed, you know, Trump's approval uh, ratings going down as the committee has rolled out its evidence, um, which would suggest that that perhaps it is breaking through, at least with some Republicans. Either it's helping them understand that the election wasn't stolen, or at the very least, it's showing them, you know, how far Trump, uh, you know, wanted to go and how, um, you know, how dangerous it was. <clears throat> I mean, that said, you know, there is a midterm election coming up. Um, there's so much else kind of going on in the U.S. right now that it's unclear how much January 6th will sort of be present in voters' minds, um, specifically compared to inflation or, um, you know, climate or, uh, or abortion or other sort of, uh, big issues that are currently on the table. Um, and then the, you know, the 2024 presidential election itself is, is still so far away. So much can happen, you know, in, in that time, you know, January 6th may just be sort of a distant memory, um, you know, at that point for, for a lot of people. Hmm. Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.